Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm John McCoy, and with me this time is co-host Megan Tripp. Hello. Hi, Megan. You want to tell people out there who you are and where they can find you? <laughs> well, I don't be too specific as to where they can find me. But um, yeah, I, I do a podcast, Not Another Bad Movie podcast, where I watch Lifetime and Hallmark movies usually um, usually with my sisters, sometimes with my friends, and uh, we just go over it and make fun of them, and it's a lot of fun. Megan uh, suggested the topic for this episode of Sophomore Lit, which is the poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay, and I, I was actually looking around for some, some poetry, and I, I have to admit that I had not even thought of this, and of course it makes perfect sense uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay is a poet who probably gets taught more in high school than she does in college, which I, going back and, and, and reading for this podcast, I think is kind of a shame because I think she's actually quite a, a, a brilliant poet. And I, and she's also, uh, <laughs> I hate to, again, I hate to be very gendered about this. She's a poet who is particularly important, I think, to women readers and, and, and to, to feminism. And I think that that has sadly relegated her to not getting into a lot of college texts. Would you, would you say that I'm being fair here? Yeah, I think that's, that's true. Um, and I think that, I mean, some of her poetry is very, um, you know, dense with illusion, um, and can be parsed more, but, you know, the things that are taught in high school are the more simple verses. And I think sometimes she gets seen as being a little too sentimental or a little bit too direct or too obvious. Um, and I think that's partially why she gets relegated to, to high school as well. When I was reading about her for this um, podcast, uh, it, she had a, f a absolutely fascinating life. But one of the things that I think is most interesting is she was a fantastically popular poet in her day. She was a best-selling author, and it's hard to imagine these days any poet being a best-selling author. Um, but she was just known uh, widely through the 20s and 30s, and all of her books sold gangbusters. It was uh, during World War II that she turned to writing patriotic pieces for the war effort that her her reputation faltered I think amongst uh, scholars to the point that I, I was looking back over some old anthologies and if you look at anthologies that came out in the 70s and 80s she gets like maybe two or three if she's lucky I think recently her 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 stock has risen again in academic circles but the thing that fascinates me about that, of course, is her contemporary Ezra Pound is usually considered to be the the, the height of modernist poetry in America. And, and he had exactly the opposite 
career uh, in relationship to the war effort, he famously went over to uh, fascist Italy and supported the the regime there, and and his his reputation survived somehow, but uh, poor Edna Saint Vincent Millay didn't. What what's your background with with Edna Saint Vincent Millay? You again, you came to me interested in in, in doing her, and I'm curious to know what your history is with her. The strange thing is, is I I don't remember specifically what poem it was. I feel like it might have been What Lips My Lips Have Kissed and Why. Um, that was the first one that I read, and it, it was probably sophomore or junior year of high school. And um, it just, I guess all young people think that they're like the first people to experience like sexual desire or something but it always feels weird when you think about like people from the 20s although that was kind of like a raucous time or whatever but when you think of people in the past like being so direct about their feelings um and like you said you know she she is a, a feminist poet and here she is as a woman describing her own desire and not you know necessarily fu- fulfilling anybody else's desire um and and that like really stuck out to me and uh her she has like a she had a um like a summer home in Boca Raton which is near where I grew up in West Palm Beach so um I was able to to visit that and um my sister like bought me a collected works uh for Christmas and we like went over the sonnets together in on Christmas Day, and then Kathleen, our other sister, was like, "What are you nerds doing? Why are you reading that?" But yeah, those are like the the main things I remember from high school. She's best known today for her very direct lyric poems. Um, she's probably best known, of course, for her poems "First Fig" uh, and 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 "Second Fig." which we will be talking about, but she's also known, as you mentioned, for her sonnets. But she wrote a lot of different styles, and she wrote some... I think people treat her like a, a simple poet at their peril, because she, while she wrote some very direct uh, sonnets in a persona which you assume is her hers, she also wrote long uh, allegorical poems... She wrote uh, narrative poems, although on this podcast we can only do a few of her poems and we're going to focus on some of the stuff that people probably are more familiar with. Take a look at uh, a collected edition and you'll find just a a crazy variety of of, of poems out there. And she, um, she, she wrote poetry and she wrote uh, an opera and plays and uh, short stories. So she she wrote all sorts of things. Just a little bit of, of background here. Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay uh, has such a, a, a memorable name. Um, I had the experience growing up thinking that she must have been uh, European or she must have been... Uh, I don't know what what I th- I thought she was with a name like Edna Saint Vincent Millay, but she, her her actual given name is simply Edna Millay. She was the oldest of three 
uh, sisters who lived with a single mother in in Maine in and uh, she grew up in in some poverty but she grew up kind of an autodidact all she and all her sisters read all the time and were writing all the time and they wrote to entertain each other so you can draw strong parallels with say the Brontes she submitted a poem the to a a collection that got it was called what was it called Renaissance I believe was the name of the poem yeah and it got a lot of uh notoriety and she caught the eye of a patron who paid for her to go to to Vassar <laughs> where she almost didn't graduate because about a month before graduation she broke the curfew and stayed out uh, overnight um and they were going to for they were not going to give her her diploma but the entire student body apparently wrote letters on her behalf vincent was a name that she used with her sisters when they were writing their uh their poetry to one another to entertain each other and so she adopted the saint vincent uh, kind of affectatiously but as sort of an in-joke uh when she started publishing poems so from from the very beginnings of her, her career she was marked as both um uh, an outsider to the the world of bohemia but she she took to it gangbusters she she lived in greenwich village in the 20s and made friends with about every major poet or uh major critic uh, working in new york at the time and she became lovers with about half of them it seems <laughs> so yes as as you mentioned one of the things that marks her poetry is a frank discussion of personal desire and of the of sort of the the adventure the personal adventure for which was utterly scandalous at the time for a woman to be writing about because women were supposed to be the passive recipients of desire not the agents of desire yeah no that's part of the reason that she so stuck out to me when i was reading um poetry was or just really any literature at all you know all the what women were doing was was being passive either they could accept the advances of a man or deny it but like to go out for themselves was kind of it it wasn't like seen as appropriate so much of the time and so much of what we were reading you know was written by men so it it just wasn't something especially for something as old as it was it just seemed like so remarkable and so out of left field for me to see that and especially since I went to like a Christian school <laughs> and uh, being as sheltered as I was it was like whoa look at this <laughs> let's get into some of these these poems we're going to start with her most famous work which is called first fig is a a, a tiny little lyric poem but if you've read any Edna St. Vincent Millay at all you you know it and even if you didn't know 
This was Edna St. Vincent Millay. You know it. First fig. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But ah, my foes, and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. Yeah, I I don't remember exactly how many poems it was that she was publishing at the time. But like you said, you know, she had quite renown in her day, and it was because she managed to be published so much, which is because she managed to write um, so many hours of the day. Um, and I, I don't remember the figures, <laughs> but I remember... When I, you know, was in high school and, and looking over her life and just how much she was able to put out in such a short amount of time, um, you you do get the sense that, you know, she's just writing her hand to the bone. The poem is so well known that I think most people assume that my candle burns at both ends is a phrase that she originated but it actually is an old adage that seems to have its origins in f- a French f- phrase. And the, the, the traditional meaning of to burn a candle at both ends is to be wasteful or to be sort of wantonly uh, excessive. Uh, I, today, I think people being more familiar with this poem think that it, it means to be taking on more than you can you can do or to be living a life that is unsustainable because of the uh, feverish pace of it or the amount of passion involved but i think that it's it's telling that malay was able to take a a phrase that existed and and give it this kind of an a spin you know because it, it did carry with it the connotation of being wasteful or extravagant and she's able to through the um, transformation of poetry she talks about how something that is excessive is also something that is that is beautiful Um, uh, now Malay uh, (laughs) had a crazy life you know and and she probably and she ended up having something of a nervous breakdown for which she had to uh, leave the country at one point to kind of get over a bunch of uh, love affairs that were falling apart. And she eventually moved out of New York City into upstate New York, where she she lived in the country. So um, this could also be her making a, a realistic ass- assessment of what her, her life was like. Uh, this was written in like 1920 so she was only in her mid-20s when she wrote this yeah it came out with a few figs from thistles in 1921 there is a, a second very brief poem that is the second fig uh that is not as well known but but fairly well known uh that acts as something of a accompaniment to this poem Second fig. Safe upon the solid rock the ugly houses stand. Come and see my shining palace built upon the sand. Just as with the first fig, uh, Malay is taking a well-known figure of speech here of of houses built on sand 
which is actually a biblical passage it's from the book of Matthew, uh, Christ admonishing people not to build houses on sand and is able to, uh, again, turn it into something that is advantageous or what makes her life beautiful and unique is the very precarious uh, nature of, of, her, of her existence. I think this goes along with that idea of the artist as, as living like in the fire. Um, you know, there's kind of like the outside world giving you admonishment to be practical and um, you know, she's living her life as a bohemian poet. <laughs> uh, kind of snubbing her nose at that. I think that if you like Edna St. Vincent Millay, part of what well, part of what I find attractive about her as a poet is the provocative nature of these very brief poems that she is beyond not being apologetic for living a uh, complicated or difficult or perhaps uh, dangerous or unsustainable life. She, uh, she lets the reader know that she's quite proud of herself and I and and I find that immensely charming yeah you could almost put at the end of some of these poems so there (laughs) (laughs) what do you make of that (laughs) I think that one of the reasons that Malay may have um, her 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 poetry may not hold as high esteem in the academy as again people like uh Ezra Pound or Wallace Stevens or T.S. Eliot, her, her, again, her contemporaries, is they appear on first reading to not be particularly dense with metaphor or particularly um, full of allusion. But I, I do think that even these tiny little poems here do have, uh, first of all, their elusive qualities, and they invite you to hold hold them in your in your head a little bit and to think about word choice uh, or or you don't have to you can just you can just enjoy them for being uh, witty little passages um but we're going to move on to uh now for the rest of the podcast we're going to discuss a few of her sonnets um, as we mentioned before, though, she's written a lot of different kinds of poems. Um, you came to me with a with a, a laundry list of poems that you would be happy to talk about. And I chose some of the sonnets because they were ones that I remembered having read at one time or another for a class. And so I thought that, that they might uh, resonate with our, our listeners who may have had Edna St. Vincent Millay in a in a survey course but again don't be fooled into thinking this is all that she wrote but the sonnet is a form that she was particularly good at as a traditional form at a time when people were uh when modernists were kind of pushing away from traditional forms it's it's interesting to to look at what she she made of such a rigorous and um, structured approach to poetry. 
you 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 say you 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 read all the 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 sonnets over over Christmas. What 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 drew you to those? Um, it's just a collection of poems and 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 quite a lot of sonnets were included. Um, and I think I I was drawn most to the sonnets, just um, because of the rhythm of them. I've never really. I think one one week in high school we went over like how to write accents over the lines of poems and I've always found that mysterious I never understood it but I could even still kind of feel the the rhythm of you know the iambic pentameter and they just all seem to flow together especially since the subjects are are usually about love and greek illusion it almost feels like one long poem when you're reading them all together yeah well quite often uh especially in these sonnets she actually moves into what's called uh dactylic pentameter which is the hard stress with two soft stresses and uh they make they're they're particularly rhythmic and 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 beautiful but uh, of course she moves back and forth between iambic and dactylic and as a good poet should she is not particularly uh, a slave to, to to meter but the these three poems that we have that we're going to read here all have the petrarchian form which is there there's an there's the first eight lines kind of set up a a, a question or a problem and the last uh the last six are are, are supposed to or the, the the last three uh sets or six verses six lines wait how's it because <laughs> eight it goes the four there are four four uh there's the octave and then there's the sestane that answers the answers them but um i i could be i could be misremembering all this I definitely read all that for one of the poems. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up and it was talking about um, all those sorts of words. And it, it was funny because I didn't remember any of it. And then at one point they mentioned enjambment. And I was like, that's a word I remember. <laughs> <laughs> My main goal in this podcast is to give everyone uh, plenty of boring literary terms that they can use to be absolutely insufferable at the next party <laughs> they go to. So in jam all is this a good time word. I've I've managed to be insufferable in different ways. <laughs> now I have a new way. <laughs> These three sonnets are are early works of hers. Uh, they were published originally in the in 1920, 1921, and then they were collected uh, in was it second April? Uh, what's the name of the collection? I'm, I'm yeah, it's second April. Second April in nineteen twenty one. So we'll start with not with libations. Not with libations, but with shouts and laughter. Not with libations, but with shouts and laughter we drenched the altars of love's sacred grove, shaking to earth green fruits, impatient after the launching of the colored moths of love. Love's proper myrtle and his mother's zone we bound about our irreligious brows and fettered him with garlands of our own, and spread a banquet in his frugal house. Not yet the god has spoken, but I fear, though we should break our bodies in his flame, and pour our blood upon his altar, here henceforward is a grove without a name, 
a pasture to the shaggy goats of Pan, whence flee forever a woman and a man. When we were reading this for the podcast, I, I kind of read it casually a couple times, and uh, then I realized I needed to, like, rewrite it in my own words to make sure I was following, like, um, the pronouns and and what she's referring to. Um, so I ended up, like, making a list of the actions taken by the we in the poem. Um, they drench the altars in Love's Grove with shouts and laughter. They shake the green fruits trying to launch Love's colored moths. Uh, we bound our brows, fettered Love with our own garlands, spread our banquet in his house. Um, the only action Cupid takes um, is... He hasn't yet spoken, so he hasn't actually done anything. And then I was a little confused at the end. She speaks about a fear. The speaker does. And I couldn't tell if the fear is death or that the grove is going to be forgotten. And what the grove itself is meant to be, if it's meant to be their love. Or if she's afraid that people will forget passion as the two people involved in the we have experienced love so even though initially I was kind of speeding through it when I slowed down I realized I actually didn't know precisely yeah I I have to admit it's a bit of a a puzzle box for me too as I was reading through it I was alighting on all the classical allusions in here which Uh, Again, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay gets, I think, a bad rap that people think she's a little direct. But this is actually quite oblique and it's full of uh, classical illusions that you're not going to get unless you kind of are are attuned to them. Um, For example, this uh, love is proper myrtle. Myrtle is a flower that is sacred to Venus traditionally in well Aphrodite in in Greek mythology Venus in in Roman mythology and then you see that love's sacred grove we have we have a capitalized love here which is either you can either read that as simply a personification of love or you can read that as eros there's this kind of a sly use of all these classical allusions as though to say we have observed these rites that are due traditionally to the god of love and yet we we await what's going to happen next at the end the 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 god has not yet spoken and they talk about how although the lovers themselves the the poet and and her beloved are going to offer themselves up as a burnt offering um the the god may treat them indifferently and i think that one of the things that marks uh malay as a poet is the kind of brutal honesty that she deals with the transient nature of passion and uh with the ways in which passion does not necessarily equal any kind of a, a lasting love 
maybe that's being a little facile here, but that's what it, what it made me think of, especially when paired with other poems that I, I read by Malay, the idea that um, even observing the uh, the niceties of, of ceremony, which <laughs> probably, to be honest, are a euphemism for sex, uh, there's not necessarily going to be any uh, connection made between the lovers. At least not a connection that's going to last. There's some very surprising images in here. The the colored moths of love. I had to I had to look and see whether that was any an allusion to anything. I could not find any references to moths of love. Do you, do you know of of anything that that might be an allusion to, or is that just peculiar to Malay? I. Yeah, I looked at moths as well, and I couldn't see anything in connection with, um, you know, Greek mythology. But um, I think moths are kind of used as like, you know, they don't live for very long. They're drawn to the flame and are kind of these creatures that live not like heeding their own safety. And... um, because later, though we should break our bodies in his flame, I kind of saw them as they're kind of acting like the moths themselves. No, that's a good that's a good reading. I, I I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I looked up that and myrtle, and uh, yeah, I, I saw that you know it was an herb that was sacred to Aphrodite and signified passion. There's so much in here about appetite. It seemed. I didn't know how to take the line about green fruits because at first I was thinking green fruits is like an unripe fruit. And so they're like going after something out of time, you know, like before they really should, mm-hmm. um, especially since that line ends in impatient after. Um, but I, I don't know if it's meant to be grapes, in which case, you know, it'd be gr- green even in season. <laughs> when they talk about shaking, um, now I wonder if she's not, she doesn't mean olives because that's the way you harvest olives is, is by shaking the branches. And um, I wonder if that might be more uh, classical illusion here. Um, that I'm makes sense. Gonna, yeah, I'm just going to throw that out there. I have no reason to, green fruits is, is an interesting line. Um, uh, we don't, typically think of olives as fruits in this country but they are of course fruits it could be pears (laughs) (laughs) how many fruits are green (laughs) (laughs) well green bananas but i (laughs) I doubt that was in greece (laughs) right but yeah so anyways grabbing at potentially unripe fruit uh they spread a a banquet and uh all throughout they're they're irreligious they have no libations uh they prize their own desire over any greek god's demands of them um and you know just the contrast of their appetite against his frugal house um those were the things that jumped out at me yeah that's an interesting thing to no one would see love either in either the traditional eros or even just love in a more generalized um, personification as being frugal 
So the, the, it, it's the, you're setting up the lovers as being more uh, driven by desire than love itself. Yeah, it's kind of like hyperbole. <laughs> Do you want to move on to the next one? Sure. Okay. So the next poem is What Lips My Lips Have Kissed. What lips my lips have kissed and where and why. What lips my lips have kissed and where and why I have forgotten and what arms have lain under my head till morning. But the rain is full of ghosts tonight that tap and sigh upon the glass and listen for reply. And in my heart there stirs a quiet pain for unremembered lads that not again will turn to me at midnight with a cry. Thus in the winter stands the lonely tree, nor knows what birds have vanished one by one, yet knows its bows more silent than before. I cannot say what loves have come and gone. I only know that summer sang in me a little while, that in me sings no more. I think that aside from First Fig, this is probably uh, Millet's most famous work. I mean, I think a lot of people who don't know where it's from know the line, I only know that summer sang in me a little while that sings no more, uh, which is absolutely devastating, I think, and, and beautiful. You, you mentioned this was the first poem you remember reading by her. Yeah, I think I was probably like 16 when I first came across this poem so you were an old soul at 16 <laughs> i was born an old soul <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this this poem is like bittersweet because it's it's looking back at past loves which is obviously sweet but knowing or feeling like that season of life is over and uh hence the bitterness and um i mean i've always been drawn to kind of more melancholy bittersweet songs and and poems and stories but I think you know as a 16 year old I just kind of I don't know wanted to believe that I would have many birds in my tree so to speak <laughs> <laughs> well I mean this is not just simply longing for lost love this is the poet uh unable to recall the names of of past lovers and um that's quite shocking uh, for a woman to write in, in the 1920s. Um, again, uh, Malay wrote this very young. She wrote this in her mid-20s. She wrote this at 28. I'm yeah, 28. Right. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> How old did she feel at 28? Right. What was 28 in, in you know, the year 1923? <laughs> <laughs> the line that you, you point out there, the, the birds... In, in the tree that it's again a, a, a just an arresting um, metaphor but uh, but but again a, a I think a very brave one to, to be writing uh, from the standpoint of a, of a woman writing the 20s about lovers come and gone uh, sort of unnumbered and and unnamed and what she's recalling, she talks about the, the ghosts that tap and sigh on, on the window. She's recalling these sensations, the sensations of being held in someone's arms, of being kissed. And that lingers long beyond the, for her, the personalities of, of any individuals. Um, 
I, I, again, she's not, she's not apologizing for that in any way. I think, um, it, it is bittersweet, but I don't think that there's any sense of remorse here. No. And it, it seems that more than missing a series of individuals, she's missing who she used to be. Mm. Um, so it's it's like remembering who you were in youth and, and realizing you're not that person anymore. Which is also part of the reason I think this poem is so devastating is it's not even... Like, there's so many poems and, and songs about, like, heartbreak for a specific love lost, but just, like, realizing you're not who you once were. I mean, I suppose there's lots about that, too, but I don't know. That just seems like a harder thing to <laughs> come to terms with. No, I think that's a that's a really good point, that this is ultimately... Uh, although on the face of it it's about lost loves it's it is more uh, to the poet about lost youth and about the potentiality of of youth and the and the possibility of love even at this point in the in the 20th century even today the there the the cliche is that uh women especially are looking for that one uh that one relationship that will be the final one that will then now they can you can feel home and safe and 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 complete and what the poet here is positing is that she has lost the potential for 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 new love or she has lost that that time in her life where that was that where everything was potential and that's i think quite uh subversive yeah, it's not so much, like you say, about, you know, finding yourself married and, and situated and putting to bed all that's come before. It's saying, you know, all that's come before is still a part of me and and all of the potential that I saw where anything was possible is, is kind of, is, I've moved on from it. It's, it's not explicit or anything, but it's, but it's, it's pretty... Uh it's pretty direct when she talks about the um the unremembered lads that not again will turn to me at midnight with a cry i think that that's uh, that's pretty racy for the for, for yeah it's, it's really direct <laughs> more so than uh, a lot of you know kind of more euphemistic or illusionary language that you might get in a poem yeah i i, I just also want to point out to anyone who is listening uh, it's sometimes hard when you hear these things aloud to appreciate the intricacy of the sonnet form here but um but malay follows in the quatrain the a b b a c d d c form but then in the in this the sustain her her rhyme schemes get all crazy and and wiggy and i was looking at each of these <laughs> and they they follow a completely different pattern for each each one of these things so uh go 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 pull these out they're they're available in a million places online and 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 uh and follow along and and you'll find it quite remarkable i think because she's a person who 
is so very skilled at writing that you never pay attention to it when you're hearing it. Yeah, it doesn't draw attention to itself. Yeah. Um, anything more you want to say about this one until we move on to the, the last one? Just this is three years before her marriage, which was... He was the second person to propose. Um, and she had a few affairs in college with women. Uh, that's all I have. <laughs> you mentioned her marriage. Uh, she She did end up marrying this guy named Eugene Jan Boisevain and she it's not was, Eugene it's Eugene it, it's E-U-G-E-N Eugene I could be pronounced Eugene but I don't know I'm, I, I have no I, idea <laughs> <laughs> she really lucked out in him he had a fortune because he was a widower from a, a, a rich woman before her and so he had some money he was able to take over as her um, literary agent and kind of manage her uh, her business affairs for her. But he also al- allowed her to continue to have her own affairs because he was uh, both a feminist and a believer in free love. And so uh, she she really uh, I think scored with him. Yeah. <laughs> in, in in that he 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 kind of uh, encouraged her to continue. Uh, just as she had been, and uh, yeah, and pal- polyamory. Yeah, and and uh, that's by all accounts, she had a very happy marriage to him. Uh, it's kind of sad she she died soon after he died. So let's let's move on to the, our last poem here, uh, which uh, fittingly is on the topic of growing old. Let you not save me when I am old. Let you not say of me when I am old, in pretty worship of my withered hands, forgetting who I am, and how the sands of such a life as mine run red and gold, even to the ultimate sifting dust. Behold, here walketh passionless age, for there expands a curious superstition in these lands, and by its leave some weightless tales are told. In me no Lenten wicks watch out the night, I am the booth where folly holds her fair, impious no less in ruin than in strength when i lie crumbled to the earth at length let you not say upon this reverend sight the righteous groaned and beat their breasts in prayer so let you not say of me when i am old um it's another one of those uh so there kind of poems (laughs) um she does not want to be given over dignity uh on the basis of her age if it means that it's going to deny who she is is basically what this poem's about and i just i i love the tone of these sorts of poems where she is kind of taking you know assumptions in the culture and just sticking them on their head i i love the the line impious no less in ruin than in strength that's my favorite um, too. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting choice of words because ruin was used quite frequently in Victorian uh, poetry as a stand-in for uh, for old age. Um, there's the the song uh, "Believe Me, If All Those Enduring Young Charms." Uh, 
which is an old Irish song that has the the lion, which is a a song about loving in in spite of uh, age, and it's a, it has the the line uh, around the sweet ruin, each wish of my t- heart would entwine itself verdantly still, and um, I think that Malay has such a wonderful command of some some language that might seem cliched except that she she turns it on its head you know the the expectation for this kind of a poem is to be like believe me if all those enduring young charms which is a poem about the constancy of love in spite of uh of age and of course there's also the very famous barrett browning poem of you know how do i love thee let me count the ways which ends that i will love thee even more in death as we grow old together with this will continue forever and <laughs> she's saying screw that i'm, I'm just gonna <laughs> keep on going the way I, I i've always been going there's a lot of consonants going on i noticed um we have pretty worship withered ruin run red reverend righteous groaned breast prayer and that's just the r's and then there's a lot of w's Worship withered, walketh, weightless wicks and watch. Wow. So that, a lot going on in this poem yeah. <laughs> in terms of consonants. That's, that's a, a whole lot of alliteration there. Um, yeah. <laughs> W's and R's are kind of hard when you when you speak them. They trip you up. They slow your speech down because the, they're liquids. They draw your lips and, and jaws apart. So again, I, I think that's that's a really good point to make that there's a, an awful lot of very clever uh, construction going into these poems. Um. I I had a few questions seeing how you read this. Um, she has the, what's the line? In me no Lenten wicks, watch out the night. Uh-huh. And so I was wondering like what that put in your mind because at first I was, you know, just thinking about Lenten observance uh-huh. and um, the devotion and reflection and fasting of sinful nature and the desperate need for God before Easter. And then it also with, I mean, obviously there's some, like I wasn't raised in high church, but there's uh, a lot of candles that go on in high church, I believe. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if, if Lenten wicks just refers to, you know, candles used in religious services, but with watch out the night, it, it brought to mind the, the parable of the 10 virgins. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking of is the wise and foolish virgins. That's another thing from Matthew. And there's basically the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the the parable is about virgins who who go out with lamps that have that have oil and ones that go out with lamps that have no oil which of course makes no sense i don't think anyone would actually go out in a, carrying a lamp with no no oil there's well it has but, oil they just uh, don't have extra oil and then the bridegroom takes longer than they think and then they have to go and buy more oil it does recall that to me the linton that I find um, of 
interesting because Lent is supposed to be a, a period of waiting, and the and if the, the the virgins are awaiting the the bridegroom, there's a sense of expectation, and I suppose that what she's saying she's talking about here is, at the end of your life, you're you're supposed to be sitting around waiting for death, <laughs> or at least or preparing for death. That that's the the the, the what decorum demands of, of women at least is that you approach uh your your eventual demise with a certain amount of uh reticence and and forbearance which she's not going to she's not going to engage in she talks about the booth where folly holds her fair which is again uh, i think a, a wonderful you know she, moving from a a line that seems to be recalling the words of jesus to some sort of a crazy medieval carnival, you know, you kind of imagine like uh, uh, someone wearing a jester's hat and and uh, you know uh, a harlequin outfit at, a, at some sort of a crazy booth at a fair. Um, yeah, it made me think of like going to see the gypsy to get your fortune told at like a Renaissance festival or something. Right. That's what the image that came to my mind was. The other thing that. I, d- I have no idea whether this was on her mind at all. This may just be a weird coincidence. But uh, folly has another uh, meaning, which was Victorians would build ruins on their on their their property. If you if you were a member of the landed gentry, there was a uh, a vogue in the nineteenth century for people to build. Uh, fake ruins on their property they would they would look like a, a crumbling greek uh, temple or something like that and they were called follies uh they put up and i i don't know if that but it, it makes me think of that only because of its proximity to the word ruin there i i, I don't i don't know what that That's means uh, or whether <laughs> i'm just i'm reaching for something here um i thought about you know the building kind of folly too, uh, just because it said booth and that made me already think of like some sort of building, whether it's a tent or like an actual like tiny castle. But I didn't realize that they were meant to look like they were old and ruinous. But that's that's interesting. The only folly I know of is the one in Central Park. <laughs> I, I learned this word very early on when I was a, a little boy. I, I read all the Agatha Christie novels and there's one called dead man's folly in which they describe describe this so i i learned that uh probably at the age of eight as you say this is again her saying so there the word impious i think is 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 so is so strong a choice to make especially after talking about linton wicks (laughs) when you read her her short lyric verses like the first and second figs there she's that seems a little bit more um a little more contemporary to 1920s it's more colloquial but but here in in her her sonnets she adapts a kind of a more antique language but she subverts that i i was curious about another thing okay um at the end she says let you not say upon this reverend site the righteous groaned and beat their breasts in prayer uh-huh. So I found like the first time I read this, 
I read Upon the Revered Site. Oh, right. And then I realized it was Reverend. So I didn't right. know if she's personifying sight as a reverend or if it just made it the proper number of syllables. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know what this reminds me of is, is if you go to cemeteries that were where the graves were put up in the 1880s to 1890s, there was a great vogue in stones shaped like women crying over the graves um, oh like weeping angels weeping like weeping, weeping angels but also just actual just wi- you know women who might be the personification of sorrow might be the personification of some other uh thing or they just might be some unnamed mourner the victorians loved mourning you know if you if i don't know if you ever read um in, in Oliver Twist, that uh, Oliver, when he got, he got hired as a as a mourner early on in the in the novel. She, he was going to go in front of the uh, processions uh, to to make people feel properly sad as a funeral procession went by because they always had to have an orphan go in front crying for the the person. And so there's this kind of a she's making fun, I think, of that kind of display of uh somber um just weeping and 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 uh, the, the the formalized form of mourning she she has nothing to do with it and of course that's something that happens after you die and she really doesn't want that to affect she doesn't want that to be happening after she dies but she also she sure as hell doesn't want it to be happening before she dies Right. <laughs> so any last words you want to have on, on uh, Malay before we, we wrap this up here? Yeah, she just, she really stuck out to me in in high school for being so direct and um, being so subversive um, in a way that I wouldn't have imagined uh, would would be in poetry. Uh, just because poetry didn't seem to be, um, at least as I had read it up to that point, to be a, a place that was a very subversive. It seemed very much like dry and uh, academic and hard to parse. So um, she was she was definitely, you know, one of the first uh, poets I read that I found really engaging. Now that we've covered a few of her better known poems I, I would really suggest anyone who's interested in uh, her to get a good selected poems edition or a complete poems edition and and read some of her stranger uh less known poems um there's one called the ballad of the harp weaver which is a kind of a sentimental um narrative poem that just shocked me because I, I had never thought of Malay as writing anything like that. But this was one of her most famous uh, and most popular poems in, in her day. It was they, they so she she knew how to she knew how to write to a crowd. I will continue to read an, uh, uh, Malay, and I'm curious to get my hands on some of this uh, late period stuff of hers that people don't like anymore. I just want to see what it's like. Yeah, I've always meant to 
circle back with the 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 later works and some of her prose too, but I haven't yet. Anyways. <laughs> Thanks again to co-host Megan Tripp. You can find her podcast, Not Another Bad Movie Podcast, at notanotherbadmoviepodcast.com. Thanks for the reading goes to Michelle Sellers. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts at theincomparable.net. Hey guys, we've reached the end of another year. Thanks to all my listeners. I'll see you in 2017, when, as always, everything will be on the final.